Welcome to The Nine Line, your news and information source for healthcare-related issues impacting Southern Nevada veterans, and a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. And now, here's your host, Joshua Gray. Hi, and welcome to the Nine Line Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Gray, and today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite things, sleep. And it's not, you know, I have many favorite things. The other one, if you've listened to the show, is food. So anytime we have anybody on the show talking about sleep or food, those are my favorite things. So today, it's sleep. And uh, joining me on the show, I've got Dr. Susan Bannock-Moreland. She is a staff physician here at the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System, and she works in sleep medicine. So, ma'am, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, it's uh, always a pleasure to talk about one of my favorite things, which is sleep, right? So, so here at the at the VA, we serve kind of a very specific population, um, and, and that population is generally older. Um, so, what are some of the things that when we talk about sleep, nobody comes to see you if they're sleeping great, right? So, when we talk about sleep, what are some of the things that that really impacts uh, a veteran and and, and our veterans' uh, ability to get a, a a good night's sleep? Well, there are lots of things that go into getting a good night's sleep, but one of the things that brings people to sleep medicine specifically is that even though they've gotten six, eight hours of sleep, they don't feel rested the next day. They feel fatigued. They may have poor job performance because they're dozing off or can't concentrate during the day because of fatigue. Uh, They might even have motor vehicle accidents due to falling asleep at the wheel or nodding off. So um, it's the lack of restorative sleep that um, brings people to sleep medicine. And that's not quite the same as just getting tired towards the end of the day, because I think all of us will have, uh, by the end of our tour of duty, uh, going, oh, I'm fatigued. That's not what we're talking about here. Um, Now, the other uh, things that can bring people to sleep medicine um, is that they have Uh, bad nightmares, they may have sleepwalking, sleep talking, other sleep behaviors, but for the most part, it's going to be um, either I snore a lot and my bed partner is not getting a good night's sleep, or I get a good night's sleep, but I'm not feeling rested the next day. So what's the difference then between, you, you talk about restorative sleep. What, what's the difference between just getting eight hours of sleep and then what is restorative sleep? Well, restorative sleep is when you wake up the next day and you get out of bed and you feel refreshed and relatively alert, even before that first cup of coffee, if you're a coffee drinker, um, and you're able to maintain alertness through the day. Um, Now, again, you know, some of us will have a high protein lunch and we have that post lunch uh, wanting to kind of drift off for a few minutes. But um, people who have non-restorative sleep are the ones that are nodding off at their desk at 10 in the morning or are falling asleep on the drive to work. 
um, that's that's what we mean by non-restorative sleep. Okay, so you know, if if I'm getting eight hours of sleep, but I'm not getting restorative sleep, what what are some of the things that can impact that? If I'm I'm sleeping right, so I'm not waking up with nightmares. I'm not waking up in the middle of the night because I got to use the restroom. Um, you know, I'm so what what causes that? Well, a lot of it is related to sleep disordered breathing. And that's where um, obstructive sleep apnea typically comes into play. And in this situation, um, a sleep study can give us a diagnosis or it can rule out sleep apnea as well. Um, Now, there are some other medical conditions, uh, thyroid problems in particular, that might cause that same level of daytime fatigue. Um, So you wanna talk a little bit about uh, how we diagnose sleep apnea then? Okay. Yeah. So the primary way we do that is- This is is great, you you interview yourself. This is (laughs) is fantastic. This makes my job so much easier. (laughs) Okay. So the, the main way to make a diagnosis of sleep apnea is with a sleep study. And there are two kinds of sleep studies. Um, There's an in-lab study called a polysomnogram, um, which we thankfully can can abbreviate as PSG most times. And that's done in a certified sleep lab. You go in in the evening, uh, they hook you up to monitor your brain waves, your breathing, your muscle activity. Um, it's, it's the full nine yards as far as a diagnostic study. And there's a sleep technician who will monitor you during that entire period of the study. Um, depending on how the study's ordered, they may in fact test you with a CPAP mask uh, for, for the latter part of the study. Um, but most of the time we like to do a full night study uh, just without any um, intervention because that gives us the best picture of what happens to a person's breathing while they're sleeping. So the question I would have there then is how do you ensure that the results are, are, are valid, I guess? Because I know that if you put me in an unfamiliar room, hook me up to a bunch of machines, there's no way I'm sleeping. Right. Uh, so, so how do you, uh, you know, how do you parse through whether somebody is just awake because they can't fall asleep because it's a, it's a weird environment and, and it's not very conducive to sleep and, and somebody who actually has an issue? Well, um, it's surprising how infrequent that inability to sleep in a sleep lab actually is. Okay. Um, these are designed to be quiet spaces. Um, and a lot of people do have a lag time in falling asleep, but usually once they fall asleep, they'll go into what is a relatively normal sleep pattern for them. Um, Sometimes we do need to repeat a sleep study and have the person take um, a sleeping medication ahead of time. Um, But Uh, Most people actually give us decent results, but again, that's one reason we like to devote the entire night most of the time to a a diagnostic sleep study as opposed to uh, throwing in the intervention later on. So, you know, you go through the sleep study and then how do you like look, how do you assess the results? 
Well, um, the sleep studies are scored by a technician, and then they're actually read in great detail by a sleep medicine physician. Now, we don't have the capability right now to do those in-lab sleep studies at the facility. It's something we'd really like to be able to do in the not-too-distant future. Um, so we do contract these, or we, uh, we make the arrangements for these through community care with sleep labs. Uh, locally in the Las Vegas Valley and in other locations for people who are living more remotely. Um, once that sleep study has been scored and it's been interpreted, uh, then we get the report from the sleep lab and our sleep medicine physician actually takes a look at the report to make sure that it, it makes sense. Now that's the in-lab studies. Um, we also now have the option of home sleep studies. And for somebody who is very concerned about being able to fall asleep in that sort of lab setting, uh, this is an option. It's also uh, an option for people who, for example, they're the caregiver for either small children or an older family member and can't really leave the home overnight. Um, and in the case of this home sleep study, what we're missing are the brainwave um, ability to interpret the brainwaves and also a couple of other factors. But overall, it gives us a pretty good idea of what that person's breathing pattern is during sleep. And if anything, it will tend, when there is sleep apnea, it will tend to underestimate the severity of sleep apnea. So if somebody does a home sleep study and it shows a good amount of sleep apnea, we can take that as a good diagnostic study. I, I know, you know, most, most medical professionals will kind of lament when, when somebody goes to Dr. Google, right, and, and gets everything in their head. Do you ever have folks come to you? Because, you know, now with technology, you can put anything on your phone. You know, there's, there's apps that, that monitor your sleep, but it's like, oh, I set it on the side of my mattress, and then it monitors how much I roll around and stuff, and then it tells me that I'm getting good sleep or not. Do you ever have people come to you and be like, Doc, look, this, this app says I'm not sleeping well, help me? Um, yes, it's becoming more and more frequent, and particularly with the watches that people wear to bed um, that can monitor certain aspects of their sleep. In some cases, uh, fairly sophisticated um, levels of monitoring. But we really do rely on a standard, it's called a, a type three home sleep study. Um, and we would not be moving on to prescribing um, sleep therapies based on uh, what somebody shows on their watch. Um, now the home sleep studies we actually do here, people come in, pick up the equipment, um, or in some cases we might even mail it to them but mostly they pick it up, take it home, set themselves up before they go to bed, bring it in the next day, and our technician will download it and score it and, again, have it read by our sleep medicine physician. And we're trying to do that um, to the greatest extent possible when it's clinically appropriate. Uh, somebody who seems to be at low risk for sleep apnea but is still concerned. Um, those are the individuals who really would need 
an in-lab sleep study that is more sophisticated and more sensitive. Okay, so uh, we, we do the sleep study uh, and, and somebody is diagnosed with having a sleeping disorder, whether it's sleep apnea or, or any other thing that is impeding their ability to get, get, get their 40 winks. Um, what's the next step? Well, the thing we are looking mostly for is obstructive sleep apnea. Um, And obstructive sleep apnea happens when you're sleeping and the muscles um, of the upper airway, the back of the throat, and to some extent the tongue, those muscles relax and can narrow the breathing passageway and even obstruct it. And that leads to this increased respiratory effort and people uh, gasping or snorting or snoring uh, during their sleep. And, and associated with that is what are called microarousals. And it's the microarousals that keep you from getting that restorative deep sleep. So we want to get them in a position where the muscles are either trained to work better or that obstruction doesn't occur based on position or, in the case of CPAP, that we can provide extra air pressure in the breathing passageways to keep those tissues apart, to keep the airway open. you, You mentioned, you know, training the muscles. Is there physical therapy to sleep better? Well, it's not physical therapy. This is for lack of a better term, right? Yeah. This is a relatively new modality that we're looking at, and it's called an Excite OSA device. It's actually an electrical stimulation technique. It involves a little appliance that you put in your mouth. Use a remote control, so guys will like it. <laughs> Um, and you actually, it actually provides electrical stimulation of the tongue muscles for periods of five minutes or so at a time, 20 minutes a day, every day for three months. But not while you're sleeping. But not, no, this okay. is done while you're awake. Okay, okay. Uh, during the day. And there are, there is some evidence. Um, it's not overwhelming evidence, but it is uh, FDA approved. Um, that you can strengthen the muscles, particularly the tongue muscles, so that when you're sleeping, the tongue does not relax as much and does not fall back and block the airway. Oh, that's fascinating. So, yeah, so that that's kind of physical therapy for your tongue. You could call it making your tongue doing push-ups during right. the day. I just talk a lot, you know, and I, I think that's, uh, you no. know, I talk for a living, so that, that helps. That helps me, I think, yeah. Uh, we, we, we haven't tried that option yet, but... <laughs> <laughs> now you're delving into personality tests and we're, we're getting yeah, way, yeah. Way, we're not going to go there. Yeah, we're not going to go there. Where, yeah. what, one place I do want to go is I want to talk about CPAP machines, but uh, we got to take a break here real quick. And then when we come back on the other side of that, we're going to talk all about CPAP machines. All right, keep it here. You're listening to The Nine Line, a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. We'll be back with more right after this. You took the first step and quit smoking. But even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. 
You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Tom has been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. I was really starting to worry. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Question, what will you find on all over-the-counter or OTC medicine packages to help you choose the right drug and use it safely? The answer, the drug facts label. This label lists the medicine's active ingredients and purpose, how much to take, and warnings you should know before using it. Remember, even OTC medicines you buy without a prescription can cause side effects you don't want. So follow the information listed on the drug facts label. For more information, visit fda.gov slash drug facts label. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Welcome back to The Nine Line, Southern Nevada's source for veteran-related healthcare news and information. Here's your host, Joshua Gray. Welcome back to The Nine Line. I'm your host, Joshua Gray, here with Dr. Susan Bannock-Morland. She's a staff physician that works in our sleep medicine department, and we're talking about sleep. And hopefully we haven't put you to sleep uh, out there in in, uh, in listener land. So you know if uh, you know if if this is putting you to sleep, we're just depriving Doctor Moreland, Bannock Moreland, sorry, of uh, of of work. So we don't want to do that, right? Either that, or you've given us a new therapeutic modality. Well, there could be that too. I've 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 solved sleep apnea. There it is. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so some of the things that one of the things that we we were talking about right before the break, CPAP machines. Um, tell me a little bit about just for for people who maybe aren't familiar about it. Uh, what is a CPAP machine? How does it work? What does it look like? What does it do? Right. Okay. So a CPAP stands for continuous positive airway pressure. So the CPAP machine has a blower. It's kind of like the opposite of a vacuum, and it blows air through tubing. Um, into your airway. And to do that, it, you basically have to wear some kind of mask so that that pressure stays in the airway during um, your entire period of sleep. So that means that essentially um, when you go to take a breath, there's that extra pressure from the outside um, that allows you to open up your airway with less effort. Okay. Okay. Now, um, there's also BiPAP, and that's used a lot less uh, for obstructive air, um, sleep apnea than it is used to treat people with severe respiratory conditions. And in that case, um, there's an upper pressure level, but also a lower pressure level, so that even when you are not breathing, there's increased pressure in your airways. Um, but for the most part, when we're talking about PAP or positive airway pressure treatment, we're talking about CPAPs. 
Okay. Uh, how much of an adjustment is it for people to get used to not only, I guess, just wearing the mask, but but having that continuous air pressure coming into your face? Uh, you know, when I was in the Air Force and we'd have people that would fly with with fighter in, in our fighter jets, you know, for like media flights and things like that. One of the things that was really hard for them to do is, you know, your breathing is kind of set up to to work for lack of a better term on the on the exhalation, right? But now with a kind of a, a positive air pressure, it's it's a little it gets a little bit reversed. Um, and, and folks say it's really weird to have to breathe and, and kind of fight that positive air pressure when they're exhaling and inhaling. Uh, so uh, do you get folks that come in and, and kind of have that same that same issue? Well, CPAP can be a challenge to adapt to. Now, the positive airway pressure is applied during a breath um, in a CPAP machine, mm-hmm. and it, but it does allow you to breathe out with relatively unimpeded. Okay. Um, the biggest problem patients have typically is getting used to wearing something on their face while they sleep. Um, and in particular, people who have PTSD can have problems adapting to it. They can often feel very claustrophobic or like they're suffocating just having the mask on. So there's a couple of things that are done to deal with that. In some cases, we actually do a period of mask desensitization. So we give somebody the mask first, we have them wear it while they're awake Um, while they're watching television, that sort of thing, um, to get used to the feel of it and um, adapt to it somewhat. The other thing that we do when we start CPAP therapy is there's a feature on the machines called a ramp. And you can set that period of uh, time to suit the patient. And during that time, the pressure levels are lower and gradually will increase. The idea is that you won't get the full pressure until after you've fallen asleep, so it's not gonna bother you so much. Um, The noise of a sleep machine or a CPAP machine can also be a factor. Most of them are set to be running at around 24, 25 decibels. Uh, for most people, that's not a problem, but you do have folks who are very sensitive to noise, and sometimes they just have to wear earplugs. Sometimes the bed partner needs to wear the earplugs um, to get over the sound of the machine. Do, do folks have to, I, I guess, learn how to sleep in different positions for, for some folks? Because I know some some people sleep on their sides, some sleep on their back, some sleep on their face. And, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a person that sleeps on my stomach, it, you know, having that mask on it doesn't seem like it's going to be very comfortable to, to lay there. Well, it's interesting because stomach sleepers rarely have obstructions because in that position, the tongue falls forward instead of falling back. Okay. So it's not the the laying on your stomach is usually not an issue. Um, we do notice that for most people, their worst um, periods of apnea are when they're laying flat on their back. Um, and often we see people that only have that when they are sleeping on their back. So positioning therapy can be part of managing Uh, sleep apnea, particularly mild obstructive sleep apnea, um, which may actually be enough so that they don't even need CPAP. Um, 
there are various kinds of masks and tubing arrangements, so um, it can accommodate most sleeping positions. Um, and it's and that's why our sleep technicians are so good at what they do is they look at they talk to patients they ask them about that they try and find the mask that's going to work work the best for them okay uh, you know and of course to to be able to use a CPAP machine there has to be a CPAP machine available to use right <laughs> and, and you know we've seen uh, through numerous industries cars computers all kinds of things uh, over the last couple of years supply chain issues have, have caused shortages um, what what's the status right now of, of CPAP machines uh, is that something that anybody could just we, we've got a stockpile here and somebody can just walk in and get one or is there a waiting list uh, how's that working well we used to have a real mountain of CPAPs down in our prosthetics area, but that changed, um, particularly in June of 2021, when Philips Respironics announced a recall of all their CPAP and BiPAP machines that had been manufactured in the previous 10 years. So they were recalling about 6 million um, C, uh, PAP units worldwide, and about 3 million of them in the United States. Now, um, a lot of those were older ones that weren't being used, but it did have a huge impact because Philips had at that point been uh, at 60% of the market for CPAPs and the other main manufacturer being Razmed having uh, around 40% of the market. So at that point, Philips, all of their production got shifted to making CPAPs to replace recalled CPAPs. Um, at the same time, Razmed was experiencing some supply chain issues, um, especially in getting the chips that are associated with the modems that were in the CPAP machines they were manufacturing. So we had a very tight situation as far as CPAPs for about a year or more. Um, we, at the time, had a f large number of the recall devices, and they were brand new. And after um, some further investigation, um, it was determined that we could actually issue those machines as long as people were following the appropriate cleaning procedures with them. And uh, we were able to, over the past year, at least supply CPAPs to individuals with the most severe sleep apnea, the most, the most at risk. Um, that uh, market situation has improved, um, and we are now able to get ResMed machines because they decided to make a bunch of CPAPs without modems. And, you know, the modem feature is nice because you can remotely change the pressures and so forth. But CPAP machines without modems worked really, really well for a long time before they started putting modems in. And the CPAP part of it still works just fine. So we are now in, able to get those and we're starting to work down our backlog. Yes, we do have a backlog. We, we always hate to develop a backlog, but we really had 
no option. Um, and so we're working through the individuals that have been waiting in some cases for over a year to get their new CPAP machine. Um, and those were the individuals with mild or moderate um, sleep apnea. Um, we're trying to increase our appointment availability uh, by going back to doing group appointments for um, CPAP setup and training. And hopefully we'll be able to get that started again in another month or so. Um, so that's for new patients and people needing replacements of broken machines. The other part of this is the Phillips recall process itself. Um, to get a, a recall device replaced, uh, first of all, people had to register that machine with Philips Respironics. And although there was a lot of media attention when the recall was first announced, even though uh, our sleep technicians have been discussing it with patients at every visit, uh, we're still finding some folks haven't registered their machines yet. So we wanna make sure we assist them in doing that. Um, once it's registered, um, they simply have to wait until Philips provides their replacement. Um, Philips has seemed to increase the pace of replacement uh, recently, um, but it's still a good while from being complete. And then we have what has just recently come up is um, the older machines, the, what are called System 1 machines. And you know, those were really good machines. They lasted, they didn't break down very often. So we actually have a lot of patients still using them. And uh, Philips decided not too long ago that they weren't going to routinely replace those. So now uh, veterans have to decide what they're gonna do. Now, if it's an old system one that they've had in their closet or they're using it as a doorstop or something, they can actually re register those and return them to Philips and, and get uh, 50 bucks. Um, which is a nice way to declutter mm -hmm. is if somebody pays you for something you're not using. But the people who are currently using them, now we have to generate a new prescription and send it to Philips. And that's just, um, just one more bit of workload that's kind of bogging us down right now. So for those people that while they're waiting for, for their new machines to come in, what, what is the, the, the bridge? from are they giving those machines up and then they don't have anything or with the recall can they can they continue to use it but they just have to be vigilant until they get a new one or how how does that work well i think you've actually summarized it quite well <laughs> um, if they choose the option of taking a machine that they're currently using and sending it back to Philips for the 50 bucks, and they're gonna be without a machine. Then we go back and we look at how severe is their sleep apnea, what other conditions do they have, and we put them in our own queue to issue them a ResMed um, machine instead. Um, if they've got mild sleep apnea, they might be waiting a good while. If they've got severe sleep apnea, we will try and get to them as quickly as we can. Um, if they choose to stay with getting a replacement from Philips, then they have to let us know so that we can generate a prescription and get it sent to Philips. Um, and then they should keep using their machine and as you said, being vigilant, looking for any signs of, of the, the problem, which was basically 
degradation of the foam and foam particles getting in the tubing. Mm, okay. Uh, how much uh, of the work that you do to help people once they have their machines is, is, is education and I guess continuing education? Because, you know, a, a CPAP machine sits on your face and there's a lot of liquids and mucus and cleaning that you've got to do and setting it up right. And if you don't set it up right, it may not work right. And so how much of, of what you do is, is education just on, on how to use these things properly? Well, I I don't do any of that personally because um, we have really good sleep technicians that specialize in that. The royal you. (laughs) Yeah, yes, the royal we. Um, So our sleep techs will do an initial one-hour visit with patients. They will set up the machine for them. They'll show them how to um, uh, hook themselves up. Uh, They'll talk about um, issues that they might encounter with masks. They'll order supplies and masks for them. Um, And then we try and do a follow-up somewhere between 30 to 90 days to see how they're doing. And we can assess that by doing a download from their machine. Um, And a lot of times they do need reinforcement. There are some people who take to this like ducks to water. You know, they they use it for the first week and they go, oh my God, I feel so much better during the day. This is great stuff. And, you know, those are the folks that at 90 days are 100% compliant and have um, a big reduction in their amount of obstructive episodes. Um, Other folks, it can take a lot longer to adapt and we just try and encourage them to keep at it. Um, and once they get to a point of, of using it at a reasonable frequency and getting good results, then we look at yearly monitoring. Um, obviously, if they have a problem with the machine, it's giving them warnings or something else, we ask them to make an appointment, bring it in, and, and have it checked. But that's one reason um, we have as many sleep techs as we do, because we are currently following about 7,000 CPAP patients. Yeah. That's it's, amazing. It's a huge, <laughs> That's a lot. It's a huge number, yes. Um, we, we have one of the bigger um, CPAP populations, and part of that is, you know, we've got a lot of military retirees here, and we do have a lot of younger patients because uh, we're seeing sleep apnea being diagnosed at earlier stages, often while they're still active duty, and then they come into our system. And then we hope that we can keep them using CPAP as long as they need it. Okay. Well, that's those are all the questions I have. Uh, is there anything else you want you'd like to add before we uh, sign off here and? Go fluff our pillows and well, go back I think, to sleep. Well, <laughs> I think this has been a great opportunity to provide a little update on, on the whole CPAP and sleep apnea um, situation. And um, I, I'm just glad we had this opportunity. Sure. If anybody's got any questions, how would they get in touch with uh, somebody who could, could answer questions about CPAP machines or sleep sleep studies or anything like that? Well, if they've never been in our sleep clinic or our CPAP clinic, we ask that they get a referral from their primary care physician or or provider or even another provider. 
Um, we have one sleep medicine physician on staff, myself, a nurse practitioner, and of course we have our sleep technicians. Um, we will try and um, respond to that request as quickly as possible and as completely as possible. May involve ordering a sleep study, may involve bringing them into our CPAP clinic. Um, if they've got more general questions, um, with our current staffing level, we're, we're not really set up to just be sort of a, a bounce it off the wall sort of resource. Um, and uh, most people do have no problem getting a referral to us from their, from their physician or provider. Excellent. Well, that's all great information. So thank you very much for joining me today. Um, I've been joined by Dr. Susan Bannock-Morland. She's a uh, staff physician working with our sleep medicine department. Uh, my name is Joshua Gray. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Nine Line, and we'll see you in two weeks. You've been listening to The Nine Line, a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. For more information about what the VA is doing for Nevada's veterans, check out our official webpage at www.lasvegas.va.gov or follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash lasvegasva. Thanks for listening.